So uh, today we're going to look at Psalm 147. And uh, just as a reminder to you, this is a a fairly lengthy psalm. uh, And I'm going to read it to you uh, in the King James Version. That's what we've been doing this summer. So uh, uh, there's a lot of... uh, Well, I, I, I had a hard time reading it at the early service. There were just a lot of words that ended in ETH. And uh, for some reason, that uh, it's hard for me. So, um, but uh, bear with me as as we read uh, Psalm 147. The text is printed in the bulletin, and also up on the screens behind me. And I don't know if you're looking at it in the bulletin or not, but in my bulletin, there are some lines that are darker than others. Is that is that the way it looks in yours? I, ignore that. That's not from God. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It just printed that way. Maybe it's the way I'm looking at it. I don't know. But anyway, um, it's not that way on the screen. So uh, if that, if if you think you're you're supposed to read those lines out loud, you can. But everybody will stare at you if you do that. So anyway, Psalm 147. This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. Comely means beautiful or attractive. You could, husbands, you could say to your wives this afternoon, that dress is comely on you. So that, see what she says. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifteth lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. He delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. He taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion. For he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates. He hath blessed thy children within thee. He maketh peace in thy borders and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out his word and melteth them. He causeth his wind to blow and the waters flow. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. So one of the things that you'll note about this psalm is that there are uh, lots of descriptions of the power of God. In fact, the first half of the psalm is a description of God's power in nature and and, and, uh, uh, just how magnificent he is. And the second half of the psalm is is more of that, even where he describes how he protects his people and uh, how he works in international affairs so that when you read this psalm, there's no aspect of life in the universe where God's power is not evident. What I want us to to kind of focus our attention upon this morning, though, is uh, verses 10 and 11. That is the real heart of this psalm 
And, and the thing that is most helpful for us today, I think, he delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Now, if you were like me in the last few weeks, one of the things that you probably have done is you've missed the Olympics. I mean, after all, you know, you're all such fans of water polo, right? You, you follow it faithfully, and so you find yourself glued to the TV when it's on to watch water polo, which is such a lie. You never watch water polo. You don't really care about it, but because it's the Olympics, you know the name of some Eastern European water polo player who is hairy and ugly and gross, but you're, you're just mesmerized by it, right? You just think, this is the coolest thing ever. And so we watch the Olympics, and we admire the strength. We admire the power. We admire the, 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 just the overwhelming uh, uh, speed that all these, these athletes have, and it's just impressive to us, which, which makes some of these sports kind of weird that they're in the Olympics at all. Badminton. <laughs> badminton. Now, now I know, is, uh, is Donnie here today? He plays badminton in a league, a real league. Okay, um, and uh, he's really good at it. But the thing about badminton that's so hilarious to me is uh, these guys—they wail at this this the shuttlecock, right? And but that's not what matters. What matters is kind of how you place it and where it goes. And so strength and power there is not something that is. A big part of that. Now they, they hit it hard and, and all that kind of stuff, but the thing's only going to go so fast. <laughs> you know, I don't care how hard you hit it or how powerful you are. It's just, it's just not, it's just not all that. So, um, but we watch it and we're fascinated by it. it at the very least, we're fascinated by the fact that, that someone makes a living playing badminton and, and <laughs> this, this is what this guy does all day. He probably plays badminton eight hours a day. You know, just, just look at that. It's fascinating. Well, one of the things that I think is, is interesting to us about that is we're attracted to the Olympics. We're attracted to that because we like strength. We like power. There's something about that that just resonates with our souls and we admire it and we think, I wish I could jump that high. I wish I was that strong. I, I wish I was that, that powerful. I have friends uh, who uh, worship at churches in uh, D.C. and Northern Virginia. And one of the things that I think is so funny, and I kid them about it all the time, is they will tell me about how great their church is because a powerful person worships there. Now, powerful people need to worship, and I'm glad they're worshiping. But it looks to me like the Bible actually warns us against that. Right? There's a whole paragraph in James about uh, why do you make a place for the rich person, the powerful person in your church, and you ignore the powerless. Right? Now, now I, I'm not making a comment about politicians or powerful people or anything like that. They need the gospel too. But the problem with that is not them, it's our perception of them and the attractiveness with which we find human power. 
Because the problem is the degree to which we are attracted to human power and human strength, and that is what we, we spend our time and our energy and that sort of stuff on, those are the kinds of things that, that says a lot about our soul. And I would submit to you today that one of the reasons why you are spiritually cold, maybe even spiritually dead, one of the reasons why today the gospel doesn't strike you as powerful and profound and you cannot hear its music today is because you like power more than weakness. Because if that's true of you, honestly, this is very, you know, let me be direct here. Uh, something I never am, but let, let, let me, let me be direct with you today that if you are attracted to human power, God is probably not attracted to you. Okay? So one of the things that we need to see as we unpack this, uh, uh, this, this passage, and you, and you, well, let me just, and let me just say something else about that. You may think, that's not me. I'm all about weakness. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about my lack of strength. I, 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 have, I have no problem with that. Well, let's do a diagnosis of that. Let's, let's ask some diagnostic questions. The last time somebody treated you with disrespect, how did you react? Did you get mad? Did you plot at least and have some sense of joy that you might get even with them? That you hope that the gospel maybe wasn't true at that moment, but karma was, <laughs> and that payback was coming, and that made you feel good? That There's an, there's an issue of, of your appreciation of power, right? And so, so one of the things that's hard about this is, is when we read this and we, we see this text where, where we hear that God is attracted to the weak and the powerless, one of the ways you have to understand this is, well, you know, one of the laws of physics is that nature abhors a vacuum, right? It's got to fill it up. Well, grace flows downhill. Power flows into the vacuum of the human heart and soul when it realizes that there is no other power and there is no other strength and there is no other place to go. And so as we, as we look at this passage today, what, what we're going to do is we're going to take, um, uh, spend our time focusing primarily on verses 10 and 11 and how they work themselves out uh, in our lives, right? So, so verses 1 through 9 and then verses 12 and 20 tell us that our God is great. Uh, and that there is none greater. I mean, these, these descriptions of him are just profound, aren't they? I mean, uh, he, he knows the number of the, of the stars. He calls them all by their names. It's not just that God is smart enough to have memorized all the names of the stars. In, in, in Hebrew, if you know the name of something, if you name something, that means you're, you're the authority over it. You control it. You run it. So the, from the biggest uh, parts of the universe, the stars, the sun, the planets, God's in control. God's in control of what happens with the weather. God's in control of what happens everywhere. And so, so the fact is this God is so big and his power is so immense, it is almost impossible for us uh, to understand it. There is none greater. Immense power belongs to our God. And honestly, if you see this for what it is, and if you see him for who he is, it should terrify you. It should scare you to death. 
It, it should scare you that there is a being in this universe who the only restraint, the only restraint on his power is himself. He doesn't need to breathe. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to drink. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of this stuff. There is no need there. It is he he has immense power. I'm reminded a few years ago of that movie that came out Lincoln where Lincoln is talking to the lame guys on his his cabinet and and he's being frustrated by something and he says, "I am the president of the United States and I am clothed with immense power." We look about us and we see men who we think are very powerful. Very powerful. And yet when we hold them up, their power, which is, is impressive to us, to the power of God, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. And so, so what the psalmist wants us to see is just how profound and how powerful and how big and also how that power manifests itself in the big things and the little things all over life all the time. So we're compelled to praise this power. And we are warned about this power because he says here in verse six, something that should get our attention. He lifteth up the meek and he casteth the wicked down to the ground. Now, now you, it's important for us to understand something about how Hebrew poetry works here. So because we hear that and we think, okay, the meek uh, get lifted up, but the wicked get cast down. And so what we, what we miss there is when we hear the word wicked, we identify that as people who are morally uh, inferior. Right? We think of the wicked as, as bad people. But the, the, the contrast in the poetry here is not the meek with the bad, but the meek with the humble. The wicked are equated with the prideful. The wicked are the ones who have no need. The wicked are the ones, the ones who find and are able to, to maintain their own strength and to, to, to work and to grasp after, uh, holding onto that strength or at least seeing something in their lives or in their control that they will trust as their strength and as the antidote to any sense of weakness at all. So if this God who is this powerful and, and who is mindful of the meek, and cast down the wicked, the prideful, right? Uh, then we must ask the question, what pleases him? And for what is this immense power that he has used? What does he use it for? So next slide, please, Liz. Um, so the answers to these are found right here in the text. He gathers outcasts. What we, that, that psalm that we sung earlier, Psalm 147, we've never sung that before, right? Is that, is that right? We've never sung that? What a, what a beautiful psalm. We need to sing that more often. That was a good one. Uh, and you know it's good if you can hear it once and you can sing it and it's still beautiful and not stupid, you know? So that, I was, uh, it was, it was really, it was really great. And it was good to sing about God gathering outcasts. One of the things that we notice about this is, is this God of immense power, who is it that he associates with? Who is it that he pays attention to? The outcasts. Did you see the story this week on ESPN about the, the football player who goes and eats lunch at the lunchroom table with the middle school boy who's autistic? Did you see that? Forgive me for the sports analogies, but it is the season. And I... 
I saw that and I thought, well, you know, we would never, ever, you know, that's middle school. Those middle schoolers, you know, they're just cruel. They're just mean. They're like that. But we're not like that. Who's invisible to you? You can't answer that question because they're invisible to you. Right? Who is it that you avoid because they're too needy or too weak or make you uncomfortable, right? This God gathers the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. Now, one of the things that you have to see about this is not only does did Jesus associate with the outcast, not only does he does he see the widow and the sick and and the unclean and all of those people and he associates with them. Not only that, not only does he associate with them, but he gets close enough to them to bandage their wounds, to care for them. Right. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. If you want an experience of the power of God in your life, one of the pathways to that is through having your heart broken. We spend a lot of time and energy making sure that can't happen. We immunize ourselves against anything that might be difficult. Um, I've had a profound experience with death in my family in the last two weeks. And one of the things that you discover about yourself and one of the things that you discover about the way the world works is You think you're pretty competent and you think you're pretty powerful and you think you've got the world by the tail until you're confronted with death and you want to stop it and you can't. And so it is in a place like how ironic is it, right, that the most powerful display of God's power to human beings is precisely at the point of death. The thing that is bigger than us God, by his, Jesus, by his resurrection, shows that he's bigger than that. But the only way we experience that, the only way we have a sense of that, is for us to be undone by that death so that our Savior can draw close to us and to heal us, right? Um, Jesus here, and, and the, one of the ways you can think about this is, is that unlike us, Jesus is like the good Samaritan. He's unlike, he's not like the righteous and the, 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 the religious people who pass by the dying man in the ditch. Jesus goes and gets him, right? He lifts the meek, right? Uh, the invisible, the people that we don't see, he elevates. He cares for his people. Now, we hear that and we think, well, of course he cares for his people. But one, one of the things that you have to see about his people, one of the things you have to see about the, the, the nation of Israel is they're all the time thinking they're great. They're the best. We are the best. We're the best people on earth. We're God's chosen people. And that's true. But God reminds them regularly that he chose them precisely because they're not the best. <laughs> that they were small, that they were weak. In fact, he compares them to a a baby who has discarded and thrown out on the garbage heap that he came along down the street one day and found and nurtured, right? So so he identifies himself with with the weak and uh, with, with the poor, right? And then he casts the wicked to the ground, right? So I don't want to be the person that gets cast to the ground. I don't, I don't want to do that. But the fact of the matter is, for most of us, for most of the, the, the time, we are the wicked 
And I know that's hard to hear, but the, the fact is, we, how much time and energy do you spend in this treadmill of life, of working so hard to appear strong, to convince yourself that you're strong, to provide for yourself a sense of strength and well-being, where what the psalm says to us is the God that God is attracted to and he finds pleasure in those who have only him as their hope. So I want to be lifted and bandaged and healed and meek, but do I really want that? Um, one of the one of the things that I've witnessed over thirty years of pastoral ministry is the spiritual renewal and revival that comes to people most often when they lose a job, or they lose a spouse, or they they lose a child, or they 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 lose a relationship. Now, sometimes, sometimes those people are just undone, uh, and they, then they can't, they can't cope. But every now and then, I see a powerful work of the Spirit where someone realizes that their only hope is the Lord, and that hope is sure. And as a result of that, uh, as a result of coming to the end of themselves and the end of their own resources, they are renewed. They experience spiritual life. They experience a power, not their own, uh, to live and to follow after Christ, right? But the truth is we're, all, we're repulsed often by weakness, by meekness, and suffering. And we would prefer and we want to be powerful, or at least we are attracted to the powerful. Uh, I remember when we were raising our kids, and this is particularly true of boys, um, one of the books that we read and one of the, the, the things that, that helped us a lot had something in it that just made me angry. And that was the author talked about your, your 10-year-old boys on the playground and somebody hits him. What do you do? Well, maybe what you do is you tell that 10-year-old boy, God's your protector, you trust him, turn the other cheek. And I'm like, mm-mm. No, no, not my boy. We're not doing that. When the teacher's not looking, deck that kid, <laughs> right? But only when the teacher's not looking, because you don't want to get in trouble, but you want that jerk to know that if he messes with you again, you're going to knock some of his teeth out, right? Now, there's power. That feels good. It feels angry. That's why we prefer to be angry rather than sad, because anger feels like power. And that feels like strength. And that feels to us like, 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 like God. And it's not, right? So perhaps this is why we find so little power for our lives. Uh, my, my friend, uh, Christopher Esket, who's a, a Lutheran pastor and, uh, Alexandria writes this. He says, we are stewards of a king who sets captives free. Our crucified king shows us life comes through dying, strength as in sacrifice, as he meets hatred with pardon. But the things God delights in are not the things of human power. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Holy Scripture consistently finds greatness not in the appearance of grandeur, the size of an army, or the wealth of a kingdom. 
It was a childless wanderer and his barren wife who became parents to a nation multiplied more than sand and stars can be counted. The younger son is lifted above the elder. A boy slays the giant Goliath. A girl from an insignificant town becomes the virgin mother to the world's true king, right? So so this is the thing that's so profound about this is that we want to be noticed. We want God to pay attention. And so we put ourselves in a position to exercise some sort of power or to get noticed when when the reality is God notices you when no one else does. That's who he's attracted to. That's who he's drawn to, right? So the Lord finds pleasure in those that reverence him and those who hope in his mercy. So what does it mean then? If I want the Lord to find pleasure in me, then that means I I reverence him and I hope in his mercy. Well, how does that work? Well, reverence is simply acknowledging what is. It's simply acknowledging that God is God and I am not. And that if I'm going to make it in this world and if I'm going to make it in eternity, he's got to do something for me, right? But not only that, to hope is to feel lack and weakness. Now, one of the things that is so hard for us to get about hope is we, we, we talk about hope like it's this, this great thing. But the only people who hope are the people who experience lack. The only people who hope are the people who know that the situation they're in is not right. And they hope and they look for and they expect something else. That's the nature of hope, right? And so so what, what, what we recognize here is that God takes pleasure in those who recognize his power and his grace and his person for who it is and know that in and of themselves they have no hope, and so their hope is in him. You see, that's the thing that's so profound about this is God is great, he is powerful, and he is perfect. And what does he say to you? He says, hope in him. How can I hope in you? I'm weak and I'm, I'm powerless. You're, you're, you're already there. What other thing could you hope in? So one of the things that I think, uh, one of the things that I learned about this, I learned from my dad, and... Um, Last Sunday, uh, well, actually, Saturday night, we were getting ready to go to bed, and I told my kids, I'm like, y'all need to get up and be ready to go to church in the morning. And they're like, what? Mama, I'll just die. We're going to go to church? And I'm like, yes, we're going to go to church. And they're like, how do you know that? I'm like, I know, I know your grandfather. And they're like, oh, come on. We're not going to church. And so they go to ask him, Papa, are we getting up and going to church in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, we are. We're getting up and we're going to church. Well, why are we doing that? He's like, well, what else would we do? <laughs> when, when you experience grief or difficulty, what do you do? You go worship. And that's like, really? I thought we just sat in the darkness and complained. <laughs> right? And he's like, I know it's going to be hard. And I know people are going to look at us. And I know people are going to say things to us that are dumb. And I, and I, and I know all that. I know all that. But you know what? God is great. Jesus is our hope. And we're going to go worship. Because that's what you do. And so they were like, all right. I guess that's what we're going to do. And they did it. So, uh, and I did, you know, fortunately, he's able to get him up and out the door to church much better than Marty and I can. So, uh, yeah. So, so to, re- to reverence is to acknowledge what is and to hope is to feel lack and weakness. You know, that is one of the things that you see. And one of the things that is wonderful about worship is 
That's all you have to have is a sense of God is bigger than I am and I need him. I, I, I can, there's no other place for me to place my hope. Now, it's not that God takes no pleasure in the strength of the horse or the legs of a man. He didn't make them after all, right? Now, I thought about this, you know, I've seen a lot of men's legs in this church. Seen a lot of guys in shorts. And I've thought, is there any man's legs in this church in which I take pleasure? <laughs> right? Right? Absolutely not. I can tell you that right now. Uh, there's, there's, so you can rest easy on that. Um, but the fact is, God takes pleasure in men's legs because he made them. And God takes pleasure in the strength of the horse. After all, he made it. Well, what's, what is the point then uh, of this? Well, God's not displeased with horses' strengths and human legs. He is displeased with those who hope in their horses and their legs. He's displeased with people who put their hope in missiles or in makeup, in tanks or tans, in bombs or bodybuilding. God takes no pleasure in corporate efficiency or balanced budgets or welfare systems or new vaccines, or education, or eloquence, or artistic excellence, or legal processes, when these things are the treasure in which we hope, or the achievement in which we boast. Why? Because when we put our hope in horses and legs, horses and legs get the glory, and not God. And what's even worse than that for you is you're lost. You're lost. So God takes no pleasure in those things if those are the things which crowd him out of your life, if those are the things in which you will entrust yourself, if those are the things which you will lay hold of. And, and, and trust me, you know, probably no time in human history has any group of people like Americans in 2016 had more stuff to trust in other than God. So to stand before this powerful God and to know that your only hope is to hope in his mercy is actually the strongest place to be. Because we recognize not just our weakness, but our unworthiness and his greatness. God has pleasure in those who hope in his love because that hope highlights the freedom of his grace. When I cry out, God is my only hope, my rock, my refuge, I'm turning from myself and all these other things that I might create to trust and calling all attention to the boundless resources of God. Next slide, please. So so the cross is the place where we see this most clearly. You see, what happens there is, is that this all-powerful God who has who is the only restraint on his power is himself, takes upon himself the, the, the righteous judgment for not just your brokenness and not just your, uh, your ailments or that sort of stuff, your actual rebellion against him. The fact that you, without his grace in your life, will set yourself up to be his enemy because you will hope and trust in anything else. You will look at the fruit on that tree and you will say, that looks better to me than what he has. And I'll trust that. I'll trust that 
because he's not trustworthy. Well, what the cross says is over and over and over again is this God is trustworthy because he takes upon himself the impact. He takes upon himself the judgment for your rebellion and my rebellion and sets us free from that. So this table today, as we come to the Lord's table, is not for the strong, the self-sufficient, but for the hungry and thirsty and those who see that whatever other resources they may have, only mercy will do. Only mercy will do. I think it is a powerful thing for us that God gives us these things to hold on to, to see and to smell, to taste and to drink. Uh, Because the fact is, uh, they speak to us, food and drink speaks to us of human weakness and the fact that we're limited because we get hungry and because we get thirsty. By giving us this bread and by giving us this cup, Jesus is saying to you, I know you. I know your weakness. If you're hungry today and you're curious about what it is your soul is hungry for, here it is. If you're thirsty today and you want to know what it is your your soul is thirsty for, you won't find that thirst quenched by anything in this world, only in and through and by the power that is found in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's use this prayer of confession uh, that's printed in the bulletin based on First uh, uh, John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Almighty God, our creator and redeemer, you love your church and you have saved us by your grace. You have clothed us in the righteousness of your son. You are the eternal and faithful God. Yet we confess that we daily attempt to hide from you. We have willfully sinned against you and our neighbor. Failing to see and trust you, we have forgotten you. Forgive and deliver us, good Lord. Renew your people by your grace, that our lives and lips might sing your praise to the glory of your name. Amen.